0: Now, Mr. Kelly called me Starksky.
1: So he turned his cart around and sped back to the capital city.
0: But then she looked up
2: the chimney, and there was something in that chimney. There was a dark bag. We lost!
3: It's time for the Apple Seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. Such a pleasure to be with you every time that you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. And of course, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. There will be some of that today as Sheila Starks Phillips shares with us a story called The Kindest Man I Ever Knew that's sure to Bring to mind somebody in your life, somebody whose story you can share with the people that you love. You'll hear also from Milbury Birch with a story called Don't Look Up, from a collection of stories called Because I Said So, stories about mothers and kids. And you'll hear a story from the great Philadelphia storyteller Ed Stivender, a story called The Wise One. You won't want to miss a single word from any of these great tellers. And to introduce us to the very first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Lacey Ivey, one of our assistant producers. Lacey, it's great to have you with me.
2: It's so good to be here.
3: We're going to hear a Texas-sized tale from a Texas tale teller. Tell us about (laughs) the kindest man I ever knew.
2: So this story is from Sheila Starks Phillips. And she retells her childhood, but kind of in a different way, where she talks about her best friend's family and specifically her best friend's dad Mm. and how he was the kindest man she'd ever known and just kind of the impact that he had on her life.
3: You know, this is the kind of story that can make you remember the people or the person who sort of occupied that place in your life. Right. It's true. I mean, so we're going to get a lot of details about the person that she's talking about, but they're likely call up details to your mind about somebody that, you know, and that's great. That's what we hope happens on the <laughs> Appleseed, that you listen to these stories and that they bring up memories and thoughts for you that you can share as stories with the people that you love. It's the kind of story that this is. Sheila Starks Phillips is the storyteller, and the story is called The Kindest Man I Ever Knew. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed.
0: Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. I have known many good people in my life, but one stands out above all the rest. He was the father of my very best friend growing up. Our family had just moved into a new home in the neighborhood, and the Across the Alley family came over to welcome us. My sisters and I were already in bed for the night, as it was after 9 p.m., and as children we were always in bed early. At five years old, I shared a large bedroom with my two sisters, seven and nine. The room had three twin beds with little chairs at the foot of each bed where we laid out our clothes for the next day. There were several windows on three sides with wonderful breeze blowing through almost always. The days were hot and dry in that panhandle town, but night times were cool and wonderful the kind of cool that comes with desert country. Even in the summertime without air conditioning we would often sleep under homemade quilts. The room had three huge closets perfect for hiding in which my sisters would often do if they thought they had even the remotest opportunity to jump out and scare the bejabbers out of me after I had climbed into bed. There were desks, chairs, other miscellaneous furniture, and a gas space heater by the door where we would warm ourselves on those cold winter mornings as we dressed for school. Holding our underwear close to the flame, we would warm it up and then pull them on quickly, giggling the whole way. This night, my parents were showing the new neighbors around the house, and they all came to stand in the doorway of our bedroom to say hello, and that was the first time I saw him the kindest man I've ever known standing there surrounded by his wife and two little girls. We were to learn that the two older sons had stayed home and I was awfully glad. Already we three girls were terribly embarrassed by perfect strangers seeing us in our pajamas. We had pulled the sheets on our beds way up under our chins so our pajamas wouldn't show. But more embarrassing was the fact that these two girls, these little girls our exact ages were still up and here we were in bed already. How humiliating. I thought to myself that this mom and dad must be the most lenient parents in the whole wide world. One of those young girls peeking out from behind her daddy would become my best friend in the entire world. Her name was Sarah but we called her Sarah do although now I am about a foot taller than my friend back then she was a foot taller than me other than height we both looked exactly alike skinny as sticks stringy mouse brown hair mouthful of braces and little round gold rimmed glasses my friend's daddy's name was Remus this always made me think of Uncle Remus and the Br'er Rabbit stories because I had never known anyone who was actually named Remus. Of course, we never called him that because in those days, adults were always called Mr. or Mrs. or Miss, so he was always Mr. Kelly to me. Now, Mr. Kelly called me Starksky. My last name was Starks. So this was his pet name for me. I consider that a very special name, since my family and all my close friends called me Sheila Baby, being the baby of the family. Mr. Kelly was a lumber broker and office at home, so we saw a lot of him. We played in his office sometimes when he wasn't at home. It was located in the basement of their house, and we would borrow his pens, pencils, and scissors, and we'd take his cigars to put in the USO we had set up on my back porch. And I don't remember a single time that he scolded us for taking his things. He had a big workshop next to his office in the basement, and we would hammer and nail stuff. We made kites and played with chemistry sets and never did he put limits on the use of his tools or other equipment. He was the parent to drive us around places because he was always available. In the winter he would spend hours pulling our sleds behind his car. There are no hills in Amarilla. With us always begging for one more time in spite of the fact that our fingers were frozen in a clamped position as we held onto the sled and our noses were red and runny, but it would beg him, Oh, come on, Mr. Kelly, just one more time, just one more time around. He always obliged, never complained. In the summer, he carted us back and forth to the swimming pool and to the movie theater. He would pick us all up after school to run us to football games. Ten talking, laughing, screaming little girls would pile into his car, squeeze in together, sitting on laps where necessary, No seatbelts back then, and off we'd go. The only problem was Mr. Kelly drove about 25 miles an hour, and in spite of our urging to go faster because we did not want to miss the kickoff, he never went any faster. When we reached the age of 14 and could get our own driver's license, he was always ready to loan his car. I liked to sing as a child and aspired to be the next Betty Hutton or Betty Grable, but I was shy and it was difficult for me to sing in front of people. We'd all sit in the Kellys' backyard and Mr. Kelly would say, Starsky, why don't you sing us a tune? After much begging and cajoling, I would finally consent, but I'd stand on the other side of the fence and sing my heart out. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. Anyone else but me, anyone else but me, no, 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 that was his favorite song. I knew all the songs from the World War II era. He always applauded the loudest and made me feel like I was surely the most gifted eight-year-old girl singer in the free world. Mr. Kelly had a way of building you up. One of my sisters was kind of chunky, and she got teased a lot about her girth, I think I was probably the one doing the most teasing. One year on her birthday, Mr. Kelly wrote on a birthday card, May your shadow never grow less. His way of saying, You're just right, just the way you are. When we reached junior high and Sarah and my other girlfriends were developing what we would call ladies' bodies, I was in the depth of despair because nothing was happening for me upstairs. Mr. Kelly must have sensed my distress because he always made a point of telling me I looked pretty regardless of what I was wearing. He was the master at building up a kid's self-esteem. He taught Sarah Dooh and me how to play bridge and how to play golf and spent hours with us on the golf course, instructing in his soft, relaxed manner, never seeming to notice when we would lay down on the greens, because the grass there felt so good against our skinny tanned bodies. Other golfers, of course, were horrified. One day he brought a baby badger home that he had found on the golf course. In spite of its cuteness, it scared us to death because we had no idea what it was. And so he taught us about badgers, just as he taught us about prairie dogs and road runners and coyotes and other native Texas animals found in our area. Mr. Kelly walked around with a pocketful of hard candy, which he gave out to any child he might run into, which did not exactly endear him to their mamas. The Kellys were pretty strict Baptists, but often in the evenings, Mr. Kelly would come over to our house where my mom and dad would be enjoying a cocktail before dinner. They would pour him a glass of Mogan David wine, and he might even enjoy a second glass if he could get it in before Mrs. Kelly, Gertrude, came looking for him. Sarah Dew and I had planned to be married in a double wedding in the alley when we grew up. Mr. Kelly never let on to us that it was an absurd idea, and he would help us with our plans, making suggestions about the number of bridesmaids we should have and the color of the dresses, what the music would be, everything about the wedding we would plan that by the hour Sarah do and I did grow up we went to different universities married and moved away from the old hometown when I would return for a visit with my family I always made sure I spent some time with Kelly's catching up on what they were doing what all the kids were doing cuz none of them lived there in town Mr. Kelly never changed he never ever looked any older He was always so glad to see me and invariably before our visit ended he would say starsky how about singing us a tune and i'd rip off a new rendition of don't sit under the apple tree a few weeks after remus and gertrude kelly celebrated their 65th wedding anniversary they were preparing one cold winter day to go down to the baptist church for an event of some kind they got dressed And Remus went out to warm up the car. He came back into the house to watch a few minutes of television while it was warming up. Several hours later, that's how the neighbors found the pair. Sitting upright on the couch, coats and hats on, ready to go out for the day. Remus had failed to raise the garage door while the car was warming up, and the house had filled with carbon monoxide. He was 95. She was 97. At their funeral service, someone remarked that both of the Kellys were walking around heaven, Gertrude was making sure the kids were behaving, and, well, Remus was passing out hard candy when their mamas weren't looking. That night, I sang a little tune for Mr. Kelly, the kindest man I've ever known. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me, anyone else but me. Anyone else but me? No, no, no.
3: Sheila Starks Phillips with a story called The Kindest Man I Ever Knew. A wonderful tribute. I've been listening to it not only with you, but with Lacey Ivy, one of our assistant producers. Lacey, what a sweet story that is.
2: I think it's so sweet. And it's just so cool how, you know, he impacted her life in so many ways by not doing a whole lot. He was just there.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I One of the reminders in this story for me, and it's right there at the end of the story when she talks about that song, right? Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we associate songs with certain people. We, we hear a song and it brings back a rich and full memory of somebody.
2: Oh, of course. my uh, My grandma was one of those people. She would sing to us all the time. And there are so many certain songs like Ring of Fire by Johnny Cash. That's my grandma right there.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, the story was the kindest man I ever knew. Sheila Starks Phillips was the teller. And there's a whole lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne.
1: You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Mm.
4: Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne.
3: It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on The Apple Seed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago you heard a story from the Texas teller Sheila Starks Phillips, a story called The Kindest Man I Ever Knew. Still to come this hour, you're going to hear Milbury Birch with a story called Don't Look Up, and you'll hear a story from the great Philadelphia storyteller Ed Stivender a story called The Wise One. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you to share around the kitchen table or the living room room, and because we know that that kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. Here's a memory of mine, a memory of seeing a photograph, a memorable picture. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal.
0: The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
3: You've probably seen the photo. It was taken by a photographer named Sam Rowley, and it won London's Wildlife Photographer of the Year Award. I'm talking about the photo called Station Squabble. It was taken in a London Underground train platform at night, and the platform is empty except for two tiny shapes in the foreground, a couple of mice in a moment's tussle over a crumb of food. The photographer was lucky to get the shot. He says that the mouse fight lasted only a second or two before one mouse got away with the crumb. But in the photo, it looks like these two mice are wrestling like humans, or boxing, or dancing. They're up on their hind legs, and their front paws are stretched out like arms toward each other. It's a photo filled, somehow, with urgency and passion and desperation and a lot of cuteness, too. And though the mice are the main thing in the photograph, and though it looks like the most exciting thing going on in their night, for sure, it's a good bet that anyone walking by on the train platform, had there been anyone walking by on the train platform, wouldn't have noticed them at all. Well, looking at the photo, I was hit with a memory. I'm in Miss Nehrer's English class. It's my senior year in high school. And she shows us a picture in a book of a painting. The painting is called Landscape with the Fall of Icarus. It was painted by Bruegel in the 1560s. And we all know the story of the fall of Icarus. We've studied it in that very class. The story of Daedalus and his son, Icarus, who escaped from Crete with wings made from feathers and wax. And Daedalus warns his son not to fly too close to the sun in fear that the sun's heat will melt the wax holding the wings together. Nor is he to fly too close to the sea in fear that the sea's dampness will clog up the wings and he'll fall. And of course, Icarus flies too close to the sun and the wax does melt and Icarus falls into the ocean and drowns. We all know the story. But in this painting... We can't see a trace of that story anywhere. It looks just like a painting of a guy plowing a furrow on a hill overlooking the sea. There's a shepherd in the painting, too, watching some sheep. And there are a couple of ships at sea in the background. But why is Icarus even in the painting's title? He's nowhere. Nowhere we can see. And Miss Nair says, look closer. Look at everything. Well, we concentrate. The windows of the classroom are open, and somewhere outside, there's a P.E. class running the distant track, the tiny voice of the coach spurring them on to greater speeds. We can hear a lawnmower out there somewhere in the neighborhood, a guy beating back the spring growth of lawn as he tries to coax his yard back to life. And with those sounds as the distant backdrop, we look at the painting, and what do you know? There, in the bottom right-hand corner of the painting, we see a couple of legs disappearing into the ocean. Tiny, tiny, almost imperceptible. That's Icarus, we realize, heading into the sea after his mythological flight. And we realize that things of the greatest import in the life of one person may not even be noticeable to someone else. In the life of someone worried about plowing a field, the fall of a flying man into the ocean happens so far in the distant background that it can hardly be seen. In the life of a person trying to muddle through Miss Nair's English class, the track team outside breaking themselves against the superhuman odds of the coach's stopwatch is nothing but an afterthought, a tiny, distant hum through an open window. And to the runners pushing their legs step by step forward to the rhythm of the shouting of their coach. The desperate struggle of the neighbor trying to keep his lawn healthy isn't even worth mentioning. And to the folks getting off the train on a London platform, the life-or-death struggle of a couple of mice for a crumb of food isn't enough even to interrupt their walk from the platform to the city surface. It takes a special eye to look outside of one's own life long enough to bring to the foreground something that otherwise takes place in the background, something worth seeing. And thank heaven for guys like that and the stuff they capture just by getting outside themselves for a moment. I always find myself admonished by a photo like the station squabble piece. A look at a piece like that makes me wonder what I might be missing just by letting my own stuff fill up the whole field of my vision. It makes me want to raise my eyes from my own story and look around.
0: The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
3: Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Is there a memorable photograph in your life, the story of which you'd like to share with the people around you? Well, those stories are worth telling, worth hearing, worth marking, and sometimes can be treasures that last through generations and generations. There's a lot more coming up. Up next, you're going to hear a story from Milbury Birch called Don't Look Up. That's from a collection called Because I Said So, stories about mothers and kids. But before we get to that story, we want to bring you a conversation with a friend. (laughs) Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the books that we treasure, the films that we see, the meals that we share, the songs that we remember, and talking with friends about some of those ways in which great stories get down into our lives is something that we love to do here on the Appleseed. I'm so pleased to be joined by the great storyteller, Bruce Walker. Bruce, it's such a great pleasure to have you with me. Well, oh,
4: Sam, it's good to be here. I've just been looking forward to this day to be able just to talk about how wonderful it is to have stories that
3: bind friends together. Yeah, intentional yeah. friend making starts with a story. It sure does. I, I'm I'm thinking you know, as as we were chatting a little bit before the microphones went hot here, I was brought to a memory of my mother's biscuits when I was a little <laughs> kid, boy. Yeah. If, if, if ever I was asked to choose a special meal, it would involve my mom's biscuits. You've got some biscuit stories, too, don't you? Oh, you better believe it.
4: Uh, I, a cold January Appalachian morning up here, uh, I could hear coming from the kitchen. I'm holding the very <laughs> bowl that that biscuits we're talking about was made in. It's got chips all in the bottom of it. And when I heard that, I knew it was a school day. And I'd make my way down a big old pop bellied stove in the kitchen and back up to that fire and be careful not to get too close because the rivets in those Levi jeans would be firecracker hot. Sure. Yeah. Watch out. <laughs>
3: that that bowl that you're holding there on the other side of the microphone as you mentioned is the very bowl that your mother used to make biscuits and you made a you made a sound talked about the sound uh that you would hear that sound uh that that ultimately is responsible for all the chips in the bottom of that bowl right exactly yeah that that sound of your mother's ring yeah wedding ring the, her wedding ring
4: as she made those biscuits each morning and see if i woke up and i didn't hear that and i didn't smell hickory smoke coming out of that pot stove see see I, uh, people think oh y'all were so poor no no oh we were so rich it was just embarrassing we were rich in family we were rich in in love for one another we were rich in all kind of things see i was born in a house that had four rooms and a path Hmm. And you, you walked out to the outhouse uh, to take care of your morning business, but we never thought of ourselves as poor. Uh, It was simply because we had so much love that was shown us and given to us and demonstrated. And what that translated to that when I got up on a Saturday morning, I didn't hear, hear the, the bowl and I didn't smell the the hickory smoke, I knew it was a Saturday morning. And so we'd get our chores done and then we'd ride on the back of an old pickup truck into town. In fact, today, if somebody saw a pickup truck with a bunch of kids with their legs dangling off the back, they'd call the highway patrol. Or right. My granddaddy would have got arrested for endangerment.
3: <laughs> but those days, those yeah. every every pickup truck bed was full of yeah. kids. Right?
4: That's, That's what it was for, as <laughs> a kid transporter. So we'd go up into town and uh, come back out that evening after spending the day up in Pell city, Alabama, we thought that was the the center of the universe. (laughs) 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 And and so we would get back home. And then if we woke up and you talk about sounds denoting things, if you woke up on a Sunday morning, you I would hear a rooster crowing. Yeah. I mean, he even sounded righteous. That that was Sunday morning. <laughs> and my mother would have a spread of fried chicken, a tomato gravy, chocolate soup, all kinds of things spread on the table. We'd have a big celebratory breakfast on Sunday morning, go to church, and then after church, we all gathered up at my grandma and grandpa's house, and they'd never be less than 30 or 40. See, my grandma and grandpa were devout believers. They believed Genesis, the ninth chapter, so fervently, that part about multiplying and replenishing, they did it 13 <laughs> times I know of, <laughs> and so there was a bunch of people on that front porch eating yeah. the dinner and enjoying it, and then grandma would roll her piano out on the front porch, and bang, 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 bang hit that that piano and she'd sing and one of the songs that she sang that uh, we didn't really understand till we got older because adults would laugh she would look up at my granddaddy wink her eye and she'd sing i'm a wow, wow woman and you a lucky lucky man <laughs> 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 it wasn't until i was at a freshman at auburn university that i discovered <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what that was about.
3: <laughs> so songs and sharing meals and riding on the back of the truck and all of those things that they're just brought to sharp focus just by having that old bowl around. That's her. all you need. As you talk, I'm thinking about those couple of times in my life where somebody has passed on and then yeah. the rest of us have had to take care of their things, you know, right. and, and we go through those things and uh, none of our experience is about the material value of those things, but we find each other, we've, we find ourselves sharing with each other the memories of the person who's passed on as triggered by those things that we find. It's a, it's right. such a, it's such a potent story tool, isn't it? It is. And, and I challenge people to, to begin
4: to think in story, you know, that, that, that's what, means what that means is people don't want the facts and the statistics cuz i do a a biz Workshop where we talk about how to get the message or branding of your business across without it hitting people over the head with it. And uh, uh, we do it for churches too. In fact, I was at a very large church out in Texas and uh, they were so, uh, you know, wanting to extol their million, multi million dollar facility and they wanted to talk about all their programs I had. I said, People don't care about your multi million dollar facility. People do not care about all the programs you have. What they care about is how how does it relate to me?
3: Yeah.
4: And so I had them go through their memories and they came up with a a story and it's gotta be authentic. It's gotta be true. People that brings me to the other side. Are are my stories true? I call my stories Christmas trees. The nuts (laughs) and bolts of that story is true. And then we decorate it because, (laughs) because you've got to make it palatable.
3: Sure. And,
4: and so when you think in stories, that's what you do.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing not only the stories, but also the the, the, the sound of that ring on the bowl <laughs> and the, the thoughts of biscuits on a school oh, day. Yeah. It's, it's been such a pleasure to chat with Bruce Walker. You can find his great work online at brucestoryteller.com. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us here on the
4: Appleseed. Well, Sam, thank y'all very much for having me. And I appreciate the for the wider storytelling community what Appleseed is doing for all of us storytellers. Because when I first started years ago, people, storyteller, what's that? <laughs> <laughs>
3: now they know. Now they know. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we'll have you around again. Will you come? Thank you. All I'll right. be happy to with bells <laughs> on. All right. Thanks, Bruce. <laughs> Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with Bruce Walker. And there's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. Up next, you'll hear that story from Milbury Birch. Don't look up, it's called. And you'll also hear from Ed Stivender a tale called The Wise One that you're sure to love. I'm Sam Payne.
4: You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment.
3: Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you here on The Appleseed today. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we had a conversation with storyteller Bruce Walker about biscuits. And, of course, before that, an entry in the Radio Family Journal. And coming up now, we've got a story from Milbury Birch, the award-winning storyteller who travels all over the world to share the stories that she has to offer. And in this story, she tells of a young girl who lives her life in the kindest way— And as you listen to the story, you may notice it's pretty similar to a famous fairy tale you might know of. An old witch tricks some children into staying at her house and then experiencing some bad karma in the end. You know the story. As this young girl encounters the witch, she learns of a secret in her house, and she has to find the best way to handle it, because she does want to be kind after all. Join us on this adventure from Milbury Birch. The story is called Don't Look Up. Happy to bring it to you on the Apple Seat.
2: Don't look up. There was once a girl who lived at the end of a long lane in a small cottage. She lived with her mother and her brothers and sisters. Oh, there were many of them. And this girl was her mother's great helper and did everything about the house for her. And her brothers and sisters, well, she cared for them as well. But that was a time of great famine and want, and one day her mother came to her and said, I cannot keep you any more. Every mouthful to you is one that the little ones don't get. You will have to leave, my girl, and make your own way in this world. And I will hope that you return to us as best you can. That night the girl slept near her brothers and sisters, listening to their breath and wondering, when will I ever see them again? In the morning, they lined up next to the door, smallest to tallest, and her mother pressed upon her a bit of food to sustain her. She went down the lane without a backward glance, and onto the high road into the village. But soon after that, she came to a village she didn't know, and from then on not a face knew her, and she knew no one. She asked the same question wherever she went. Do you have some work for a girl, a handy, handy girl? But the answer was always the same. There's no work here, for man or boy or girl, get you gone. And so she would go ahead, to the next and the next. Her food lasted as long as she could make it. But soon there were just bits and crumbs, and she knew that she must find some food if she were to survive. One night she slept and awakened and walked about, wondering what to do, and saw three fields surrounding a wood, a dark wood. She went to the first field, walked in, and there, right in the center of that field, where none should be, An apple tree and the tree was bent down against the weight of the fruit. She went right up to it and the apple tree spoke to her as if it was a person. Girl of mine, girl of mine, pluck me. For seven years no one has plucked me. Well I shall pluck you now and she pulled off the apples until they made a carpet all round and brought some fruit up into her skirts, and went her way, refreshed. The next day she came to the second field, and in the middle of that field, where nothing should be, she saw a cow swollen with milk. The cow spoke to her just as if it was a person and said, Girl of mine, girl of mine, milk me for seven days. Days, no one has milked me. Well, I shall milk you. And she did. Drinking the fresh milk, she was refreshed and went her way. The next day she came to the third field, and in the center of that field, where nothing should be, there was an oven. She went right up to it, And she reached out to touch. Ow! Hot! But the oven spoke to her and said, Girl of mine, girl of mine, open me. For seven years, no one has opened me. Well, I shall, she said. And she pulled open the oven door. And there was loaf after loaf after loaf of fresh bread. She pulled the loaves out, kept one for herself ate a bit and was refreshed. And that night, she slept well. The next morning, she went straight to the woods. Now she knew the stories. She knew that one should not enter the dark woods, but she did. The path was narrow and the sun could not make its way down all the day to the ground. And yet still she went, Courage, she said. It wasn't long before she came to a clearing, and in that clearing there was a cottage. And she knew someone was to home because smoke was coming out of the chimney. She knocked right smart on the door. The door opened just the smallest bit. And an eye, a dark eye, looked out. Who are you? What do you want? I'm here to work. I'm a girl who can do almost anything. I would like to work for food. I'm very, very hungry. Well, what can you do? I can uh, cook and mend and garden and bake. I can do anything just for food. Well, you come in, then. We shall see what you can do. So she went right through the open door now. But what she did not know is that the woman was a witch. Now, girl, you may stay here tonight, and I shall feed you. But tomorrow morning, you begin your day. By going over right at that hearth, you see it. And I want you to scrub those marble stones back and forth, back and forth, until you can see your face. But woe betide you, girl, if you look up the chimney. Well, the girl slept that night and thought of her brothers and sisters, but got up the next morning and she began her work and she scrubbed those marble stones back and forth. And indeed, she could see her own face. She worked harder that day than she had ever worked in her life. Cooking, helping, cleaning. And she fell into bed and slept. Each day began that way, scrubbing back and forth, and she never looked up the chimney. The truth of it is, after a day or so, they got on rather well each one working hard. Very few words exchanged. Then, after a while, the woman said to the girl, Now, girl, I will go away, three days, perhaps four, but while I am gone, you do as if I was here to see you. You work hard, scrub the stones, and woe betide you, girl, if you look up. And if you do anything amiss, I will know, and I will be back so swiftly that you will not be able to believe it. Aye. Well, I, I shall work hard. The next morning, the girl got up with a light heart, and she went about her work as swiftly as ever she had done. First, of course, she scrubbed the marble stones and the next day passed just as quickly. She brought flowers in and sang about her work and began, of course, by scrubbing the marble stones. On the third day, she got up, set herself to work, and scrubbed those stones back and forth and back. (gasps) But then she looked up the chimney and there was something in that chimney. There was a dark bag, and when she laid her eyes upon it, the bag started to descend right into the hearth. Oh, she said, and she stepped right in and shoved it and pushed it back into place. There, and stepped back, only to see the bag descend again. Well, well, and she fetched a small stool stepped upon it, and pulled the bag up and hooked it to a hook she found inside the chimney, stepped out to see it come down again. She couldn't get it back. Well, now what was she to do? She looked at that bag. She saw that it was noosed tight. And so she opened the noose, slid her hand in, and pulled it out, for there was something cold sliding away. But she was a plucky girl, and she put her hand in again and pulled out gold coins plenty. Which is gold? Well, now I ask you, what was she to do? So she thought for a moment, and then flung the bag right over her shoulder and ran for her life. She ran faster than she had ever run before, down the path and toward the fields, and came out in the first field with the apple tree. She ran up to the tree and said, Tree of mine, tree of mine, hide me, so the old witch won't find me, because if she does, she'll break my bones and bury me under the marble stones. Shh! Hold on tight, girl. So the girl flung her arms around the trunk of the tree and the tree's branches swirled and dipped until she was concealed. And not a moment too soon because right behind her came the witch's heavy tread. She came to the tree and said, Tree of mine, tree of mine, have you seen a girl with a willy-willy wagon and a long-tailed bag? She stole my money. It was all that I had. "'No, mother, not that girl, but another. "'Which way did she go? "'That way.' "'And the woman ran, and so did the girl, "'until the girl found herself in the second field. "'And she ran right up to the cow. "'Cow of mine, cow of mine, hide me, "'so the old witch won't find me, "'because if she does, she'll break my bones "'and bury me under these marble stones. "'Get behind me, girl.' Lie down behind me. And she did. And the cow's great body concealed her, just in time. For the witch came up and said, Cow of mine, cow of mine, have you seen a girl with a willy-willy wag and a long-tailed bag? She stole my money, and it was all that I had. No, not that girl but another. Which way did she go? That way. And they both ran. The girl ran to the third field and ran straight up to the oven. Oven of mine, oven of mine, hide me so the old witch won't find me because if she does she'll break my bones and bury me under the marble stone. Shh! Get behind and be quiet. When the witch came up She said, oven of mine, oven of mine, have you seen a girl with a willy-willy wag and a long-tailed bag? She stole my money. It was all that I had. Yes, mother. She's inside. Pull open the door. The witch pulled open the door, which was cold. Put her hand on one side and her hand on another. I feel no girl. Look farther, mother. The witch peered and looked. I see no girl. Step up, mother. So the witch put up one foot and then another and then leaned far in to find that girl and the oven door
0: closed
2: with a sigh and the girl ran for home. I cannot tell you how long it took her, and I cannot tell you why they knew she was coming. But when she ran down that path toward the cottage, there they were from smallest to tallest and her mother waving her apron. Oh, the joy in that cottage that night. Oh, the embraces! And they say that from then on, from the time that the woman's gold came to the family, no one ever came to the door who did not leave with a blessing and food. Oh, yes, and the witch? Well, she stayed in that oven a long, a cold, and a hard time, and when she came out, for come out she did, she was witch. no more.
3: Milbury Birch with a story called Don't Look Up. Kindness can take many forms in stories that you hear, and this one was a good example of showing that things don't always end like you expect them to. Nice that kindness prevails. And the last story we have for you today comes from the great storyteller Ed Stivender, who loves to share fairy tales and traditional tales and stories that have long been passed down from teller to listener of all kinds. Ed has been called the Robin Williams of storytelling, and there's no secret why. In this story, we're going to be sharing with you today. Ed tells a tale that takes the phrase, kill them with kindness and gives it new meaning. He tells of an old man who's full of wisdom, known by his own people only as the Wise One. And when trouble comes to the town in the form of a giant, well, that's the story. Here it is, The Wise One, told for you by Ed Stivender, here on The Appleseed. Once in
1: the land of Canafloria, there lived a man who was so wise, no one really knew how wise he was. He was also very old, In fact, he was so old that no one could remember his name. And so they called him the Wise One. The Wise One lived a modest life in a secluded cottage in the middle of a dense forest. There he nourished himself on wild berries and nuts and spent long hours conversing with the forest animals and meditating deeply. Although the hut was secluded, it lay not far from the road that connected the capital city of Canafloria with the city of trade. This was obviously an important road because it carried many cart drivers and merchants and all of the travelers between the two cities. One morning when the first cart driver had come halfway to the city of trade, he came upon a giant who barred the path and said, You shall not pass until you fight me. Choose any weapon you like, and I will more than match you. Now this cart driver was no warrior. So he turned his cart around and sped back to the capital city, warning all of the other cart drivers as he went. Word of this reached the president of Canifloria, and he called his advisers, his council of three, together. What shall we do about this giant? The first advisor spoke. The continuance and viability of the state of Canifloria is threatened. We must stop this giant. Let us send the Master of Clubs. And so it was agreed. The next morning the Master of Clubs came to the place where the giant stood. You shall not pass until you fight me. Choose any weapon you like and I will more than match you. I choose clubs, said the Master of Clubs, and raised his heavy oaken club. But no sooner had he done so when there appeared in the hands of the giant a club more oaken and more powerful than that in the hands of the master. And in a few moments, the master of clubs was utterly defeated. Word of this reached the president of Canafloria, and he called his advisors together. What shall we do in this matter? The second advisor spoke. Mr. President, the people of Canafloria have a right to travel where they wish. We must stop this giant. Send out the Master of Swords. And so it was agreed. The next morning the Master of Swords came to the place where the giant stood. You shall not pass until you fight me. Choose any weapon you like and I will more than match you. I choose swords, said the Master of Swords, and raised his stainless steel, highly polished, very sharp sword. But no sooner had he done so when there appeared in the hands of the giant a sword, more stainless, more highly polished, and more powerful than that in the hands of the master. And in a few moments, the master of swords was defeated utterly. Word of this reached the president. He called his council together. What shall we do in this matter? The third adviser spoke, Mr. President, the sovereignty, the right to exist, of the state of Cannafloria has never been so threatened. Therefore, we must send out our most powerful warrior. "'Send the Master of Fire!' "'The next morning, the Master of Fire reached the place where the giant stood. "'You shall not pass until you fight me. "'Choose any weapon you like, and I will more than match you.' "'I choose fire,' said the master. and began to throw lit torches at the giant almost faster than the eye could see. "'But the giant took the torches and threw them back, "'burning hotter and faster than before, "'and in a few moments the Master of Fire was utterly defeated.' Word of this got back to the president of Canafloria. He called his advisers and said, We have sent out our greatest warriors, and still the giant bars the path. Can you think of no better idea? The wife of the president of Canafloria was sitting at the table with them, and she said, Why not send the wise one? What could the wise one do when our greatest warriors have been defeated? But since no one had a better idea, He sent a delegation to the wise one who listened and told them, I will see what can be done. Go back to your homes. The next morning, the wise one started out towards the road between the two cities. On the way, he stopped at a farm and borrowed a cart and a cow to pull it. Traveling in this fashion, he reached the place where the giant stood. You shall not pass until you fight me. Choose any weapon you like, and I will more than match you. Oh, said the wise one. I shall have to think about this. And he sat down upon the ground to ponder. No sooner had he done so when the giant too sat down upon the ground to think. But since he had nothing to think about, it did not do him any good. Besides, it was a very hot day, and soon the giant became very uncomfortable. After a while, it came time for the cow to be milked. The wise one went to the cart, took a bucket, and crouched beneath the cow. When the bucket was full, He dipped a cup into the milk and took a long, deep drink. The giant looked on longingly. Oh, could it be that you are thirsty? I admit that I am. The wise one dipped the cup into the milk and raised it to the giant. Please accept this simple gift from your humble friend. Suddenly, the giant jumped up and said, Oh, no, I see what you are trying to do. You are trying to kill me with kindness. Well, it will not work. I'll show you. And With that, the giant disappeared down the road and in a few moments came back, bearing in his arms fresh brown baked bread, nuts, fruit, vegetables, tofu, yogurt, all of the kinds of things that someone like the wise one would like to eat. The wise one sat down to a sumptuous feast. When he had eaten his fill, and perhaps a little more, he said, I should like to tell you about myself. Although I make no claims, they call me the wise one. I live not far from here, in a secluded cottage. Well, said the giant, I shall tell you more about me than you have told me about you. I have no name, for I was born of the union of the wind and a curved mirror. I have no power except that which my opponent chooses for me. Oh, I had thought as much, said the wise one. But it is getting late, and I must get to the city of trade before dark. May I give you a ride to a place of rest? Will you never finish with your trickery? I will show you once and for all. And with that, he picked up the wise one and the cart and the cow and ran like the wind all the way to the city of trade. He put down the wise one and the cart and the cow and said, I hope you have learned your lesson. Oh, yes, I have, said the wise one. And thank you. No, thank you very, very much. And with that, the giant disappeared down the road. The wise one went into the city of trade, and there he explained the nature of the giant to the people and how they should treat him, and from that day forward, for as long as the giant lived, anyone traveling between the city of trade and the capital city had only to travel halfway, because the giant would carry them the rest.
3: The Wise One, told for you by Ed Stivander. It's been such a pleasure to share these stories with you today, stories about kindness and sharing that gift with all that we seek. We hope you've been reminded of your own memories and stories of people or events in your own life that you can share with those around you. It's always such a pleasure for me to be with you here on The Appleseed. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. And, of course, you can join us online at byuradio.org Appleseed for not only the full hour-long episodes of the Appleseed that you've come to love, but also mini-episodes. We call them Appleseed Extras. A single story long, just a few minutes in case you've only got a few minutes and you want to fill those few minutes with a great story. Today, you'll find a story there called Grease and Old Spice by the great storyteller Kim Whitecamp. Can't wait to be with you again. We'll see you next time.
1: Thanks for joining us for an hour
4: of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed.
1: The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.